Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today, first and seconds, Jason Wilson will comment on Trump's pardon of a father-son team of far-right ranchers and a recent far-right riot in Portland. And then Christy Thornton will analyze Mexican politics after AMLO's victory in the recent election. On July 10th, Trump pardoned a father-son team of ranchers, Dwight and Stephen Hammond. They were doing five years for arson on federal land, sentences that inspired the armed occupation of a federal wildlife refuge in Oregon in 2016. This follows Trump's pardon of the horrid Joe Arpaio, former sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona. Both pardons are friendly gestures to Trump's friends on the right. The Hammonds were convicted under a 1996 anti-terrorism law. I don't like the expansive use of the charge of terrorism, and those were long sentences, but Trump's message seems to be that it's okay to take violent action against the U.S. government if you're white and right. Here's Jason Wilson, who covers that crowd for The Guardian out of his base in Portland. He'll also tell us about a riot led by a right-wing group called Patriot Prayer, with reinforcements coming from the Proud Boys, a fighting organization founded by Gavin McInnes, co-founder of Vice magazine. Jason Wilson. What do you make of uh, Trump's pardon of the, the Hammonds? Whatever President Trump's intentions or motivations, it's difficult for anybody to read this as anything other than a victory, not only for the Hammonds, but for the Bundys and those who occupied uh, a federal facility in uh, Harney County in 2016. Um They've got pretty much everything they want, including a partial dismantlement of some public lands by the Trump administration. Uh, with impunity, the Bundys haven't been convicted of every, anything at all after two botched prosecutions. Uh, the Hammonds are back at home, having had their sentence commuted and not having served the mandatory minimum sentence they were, they were sentenced to in late 2015, sentenced to serve in late 2015. So... Everyone who was involved in that occupation or in the events leading up to it has basically has basically won. Uh, their, their political project has delivered. What this tells me is if you're a right-winger, uh, you can occupy federal lands and set fires on them uh, and get away with it. That's pretty much the story here, right? It does seem that way. Yeah, it's, it's hard to read it any other way. I mean, it's important to note that, you know, the Hammonds conflicts with the federal government stretch back to the, the mid-1980s. Dwight and Stephen were arrested in 1994 for interfering with a, a federal officer, um, and they were part of a kind of a wise use movement, a sort of quasi-insurrectionary wise use movement around public lands that arose in parallel with the militia movement back then. These are not people who have just accidentally lit a fire. I mean, the fire they were accused of lighting on federal lands, that were convicted of lighting on federal lands, was to allegedly to, well, the government alleged to cover evidence of an illegal deer hunt that they'd done on federal land. It's a long-running conflict in the 1990s. When it reared its head, though, they were accused of threats of violence towards federal officers. Um, this spilled out into the community. You know, a lot of people there worked for the federal government. People were ostracised, threatened, stalked, not necessarily by the Hammonds, but as part of the, the uprising that happened. They've gotten away with it. They're, they're at home now, um, and the Bundys are at home. Ryan Bundy's running for governor of Nevada. Every, you know, it's hard to imagine how they could have um, gotten any more of the, what they wanted, apart from the renunciation of a lot of precedents um, about federal lands. Um, you know, that's They're probably working on that right now. But, but the Trump administration is dismantling, um, you know, national monuments um, and, and things are kind of heading their way. So it's it, they've done well out of this. The terrorism charge does make me nervous sometimes. There is an inflation around that word. Animal rights activists have been arrested and thrown into really horrible solitary confinement uh, under charges of terrorism. Should we be comfortable with this charge of terrorism or should we be uncomfortable about them? How should we feel about that? The federal government appealed against a pretty light sentence they got and, you know, got, got them sentenced under mandatory minimums. The mandatory minimums arise from laws that were actually passed by the Clinton administration in the mid to late 1990s to deal with, um, you know, domestic terrorism in, in the wake of Waco and the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City by Timothy McVeigh. You know, the, the Clinton administration passed a whole bunch of laws. Now, the word terrorism, there, there seems to be a, a, a kind of, liberal attachment to applying this to, to to people as a matter of fairness or something, and I, I don't know about that. Um, but look, it's possible to be opposed to mandatory minimums and to draconian domestic terrorism laws, and at the same time decry the fact that, you know, the Trump administration are making a special exception for these far-right 
white guys whose politics happen to kind of align with a lot of people in Trump's caravan. In other words, yes, I think we should be worried about draconian domestic terror laws and and um, mandatory minimum sentences. And, and I don't think that they're great laws and they have been applied to environmental activists. But um, I think it's also possible to be outraged by the exception being made here. Those of us who are old enough remember the Sagebrush Rebellion from the early 80s, the Reagan administration uh became uh, the uh, allies of that rebellion, which is basically Western ranchers and miners wanted uh, the federal government out of land management in the West, and they wanted to be able to exploit it uh, freely. Here we are, you know, 30-some years later, and we're still fighting these battles, but it does seem like uh, the rebels are winning this one, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I don't think that any of that stuff has ever gone away. And um, I think those of us who report in the West, uh, I think most most will agree with me that that attitude to public lands and the idea that public lands should be freely able to be exploited by by ranchers and miners and and other extractive industries, um, that's kind of embedded as conservative common sense in the West, particularly in the rural areas of the West. And Western conservatism and the Western far right maybe differ from folks in the South or whatever in, in that emphasis. And yeah, that that uh, those ideas have never gone away. I think um, radical action around them waxes and wanes. Uh, but it seems that it seems to me that um, you know Zinke, Trump's in, in Interior Secretary, is fully on board with that kind of Western conservative common sense around public lands, and that's visible in the moves that the Trump administration has made around public lands. So yeah, I would say at, at this point the the tide is is definitely running their way. Trump himself and his interior secretary and the other people in his administration appear to have precisely zero sympathy with um, any kind of environmental movement or environmental claims that might be made about about these public lands. So, yeah, I mean, and, and this is a kind of symptom of that, I think. Um, you know, apparently um, the buck on this decision stopped with Trump. He's the one who, who made the decision. That's what the... That's what the Hammonds claimed today anyway in, in the press conference they gave um, when they arrived back in Oregon. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely, this this is the way things are heading at the moment. Your part of the country, uh, the Pacific Northwest, has become a real hotbed of far-right activism in the U.S. It's been that way for a while, but uh, it's really uh, hitting the headlines uh, more and more. You had a mini Charlottesville in Portland recently. I don't know if it really got full attention that it deserved. Uh, what What happened there? What happened was that um, on Saturday, June the 30th, the Patriot Prayer Group, uh, who is based out of Vancouver, Washington, um, which is just over the Columbia River and part of the Portland metro area, I guess, but very suburban and, you know, adjoining kind of rural areas. A group from there called Patriot Prayer has been having events in Portland for more than a year now. And they're not the Nazified type of far right that you saw in Charlottesville. They're not um, avowed white supremacists. They're more like a kind of a pro-Trump group. They're very much on board with a kind of Trumpian politics and with a kind of Western libertarian conservatism as well. So they had a rally on the 6th of June uh, that devolved into violence and they and and their opponents, anti-fascist activists and others, felt that Patriot Prayer had lost that day and Patriot Prayer also claimed that the Portland Police Bureau stood down. In the weeks between the 6th of June and the 30th, the leader of Patriot Prayer, Joey Gibson, put out a national call for participation in a rally on June the 30th. They got a lot of people to come in from all over the country, including, I counted at least 60 others, counted 80 members of the Proud Boys organisation, a fraternal organisation um, which calls itself Western Chauvinist that was founded by uh, your neighbour, Gavin McGuinness, the founder of Vice magazine. A, a tonne of these guys showed up. They had a, a permitted rally in, on federal land, so they were initially protected by DHS officers. Then they took off on a march, and Portland police did not really successfully keep those two groups separate. There were kind of three major confrontations on the march. Some of the violence I saw was, I would say, worse than most of the street violence I saw in Charlottesville, which, is a, which was a much more static situation for most of the time. People were beating each other with sticks, I saw several instances where any, a single anti-fascist was on the ground being kicked and beaten by, you know, up to 10 people. There was a lot of blood. There were gas weapons being used by police and protesters. A counter-protester, an anti-fascist counter-protester, ended up in hospital with a fractured skull and a brain hemorrhage. 
it was a real mess, Doug. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. The numbers weren't up there with Charlottesville, but the intensity of the violence was was really something else. In the period we're in, that story has just kind of disappeared somewhat <laughs> between the cracks. He's having another rally on August the 4th, and both sides are really putting out um, national calls for assistance there. It's not clear to me where this situation in Portland is heading. These guys are very self-consciously staging incursions into a liberal city. Um, they're very, very openly a kind of pro-Trump movement, as are the Proud Boys. And, you know, they claim to be standing for free speech. But, yeah, they, they, they had their first declared riot on June the 30th. So let's see what happens on August 4th, I guess. And how do the cops behave in this? There were three different sets of cops, actually. There was uh, Department of Homeland Security, so Federal Protective Services officers. Um, one of the first things that happened on the march was that um, those officers fired less lethal ammunition, so pepper, pepper bullets at uh, the counter-protesters, so at the, the leftist side. They did that again later in the day. They were cooperating, really, with the right-wing guys with Patriot Prayer. I mean, they asked a Patriot Prayer guy, whether it was okay to, you know, I had my press pass on, whether it was okay to let me into the park. You know, they were collaborating on that level, checking with them who should be allowed in and who shouldn't. But they were pretty stationary. They, they stayed around the park, around the federal property. Then there was the Portland Police Bureau and Multnomah County Sheriff's deputies. They've tried different strategies and different tactics, I think, to deal with this situation. At times, like on June the 6th, they've just let the two sides fight and been really quite hands-off, and that happened a couple of times last year as well. On this occasion, they kind of hovered around, and once Patriot Prayer departed from their march route and really got stuck into it with um, the counter-protesters, they declared the march permit had been revoked, which meant that they were confined to the sidewalks. Uh, and then when the fighting continued a little later, they, they declared a riot and... and told people they had to go back to the square. I mean, you know, everyone in local government has has read about the, the dis decision in Skokie, Illinois. That came up in Charlottesville last year. They're worried about triggering First Amendment-type lawsuits. They're cautious about that. And I just, you know, the anti-fascist side will say that they're actively colluding with Patriot Prayer, and I don't think that's exactly true, except in a passive sense. I don't think they have the imagination to find a kind of workaround in terms of the First Amendment stuff to stop this thing happening. I feel like they're losing patience with the right-wing protesters who, after all, are out-of-towners who are busing across the state line to do this. I just don't think they really have a strategy, a consistent strategy that's worked for them, and I don't think they know what to do. So it sounds like this is going to go on for uh, quite a while. I can't see what would stop it unless, you know, the Patriot Prayer movement just runs out of steam and, and can no longer attract people to these events. I, I just... That's the only thing that I can see stopping it. I don't think that the city or the police have the, the wherewithal or the imagination to find a way to stop it themselves. How is Jason Wilson, who covers the far right for The Guardian. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. was the 11th of Douze Notations by Pierre Boulez, performed by P. Shen Chen. Next, the Mexican elections. On July 1st, the country elected a new president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO, and with him a large slate of candidates to Congress as well as state and local offices running on his Morena party ticket. Morena, an acronym for the National Regeneration Movement in Spanish, was founded by AMLO in 2012. Here's Christy Thornton to explain what happened. Christy Thornton was executive director of NACLA, the North American Congress in Latin America, from 2005 to 2009. She's now assistant professor of sociology at Johns Hopkins. Christy Thornton. So, of course, the big news 
first majority for a presidential candidate in what uh, almost 30 years right yeah that's right the first time since you know the advent of the sort of d democratic opening is what they call it so this is definitely the highest result that a presidential candidate has gotten in a long time for the pre to have stolen that would have been <laughs> quite a quite a task yeah so that was the big worry i was there as an election observer with this group called the scholars and citizens network for democracy and having been there a year ago for the gubernatorial elections in the state of mexico which is this pre-stronghold, right? It's the place that the pre sort of comes from. The little ruling cabal, which is called the Grupo Atlacamulco, is from there. Those elections were so dirty, and we just saw constant illegal election activity on the street everywhere I went last year. And this time it was much more calm. There was much less of the kind of illegal activity that you saw. And I think it was precisely because the polls indicated such an overwhelming victory that the pre and the pan knew, even with the fraud that they might perpetuate, it wasn't going to be enough to sort of steal the election. And so we didn't see that this time. And the pawn has historically been in the fraud too. The pawn has used a lot of the same tactics that the pre has in various places, which is to say the things that have been against electoral law in Mexico, things like transporting voters to the polls, giving out rewards for voting, those kinds of things. The PAN has absolutely used those, as has, it should be said, the left-wing PRD. So all three of those sort of major parties have all used that kind of thing. Obviously, it's these are practices that were invented by the PRI, that the PRI really honed, and the well, PRI is the best That also sounds it. like what an American urban machine would do, too. Absolutely. And it is very much a kind of machine politics where um, there is a sort of strict hierarchy and people sort of answered their way up the chain. And I was really surprised in the place where I was that we did not see the kind of overwhelming use of those kinds of irregularities that I saw last year. There was basically one polling station out of the 20 that I visited over the course of the day where I saw this kind of activity. And I had seen it at literally every single polling station I went to last summer for these state elections. So it was a massive difference, and all because the polling indicated that there was basically no way to beat Lopez Obrador. So already people are saying he's selling out. He hasn't even taken office yet, uh, but he's selling out. What, what do you say to that? That's a charge that has definitely been leveled at him through this entire campaign. Uh, and it is absolutely true that he moderated his stances on a number of things over the course of this campaign. With regard to NAFTA, for instance, he used to just be a kind of blanket NAFTA critic. Uh, in the course of this campaign, he said, okay, there are things about NAFTA that work. There are things we're going to have to change. Uh, he particularly wants to protect Mexican farmers more. Given the high level of subsidies that the United States gives to its agricultural sector, he said that there should be something similar for Mexico. On his ties to the business class, that has been a really important part of this campaign. So an important campaign official for him um, is this guy called Alfonso Romo, who will probably be his chief of staff. And Romo is a industrialist turned investment banker who has very close ties to the kind of Monterey elite in the north. Um, so the presence of Romo was a big thing that people were concerned about in the beginning of the campaign, throughout the campaign. And then one of the important coalition partners in the campaign is this small right-wing evangelical party called um, Encuentro Social. And so AMLO's alliance with this small right-wing evangelical party was something that, for instance, the LGBT community decried from day one because they are a right-wing, um, anti-abortion, anti-LGBT, anti-women's rights kind of party. And in talking to people who are going to be in AMLO's cabinet, they seem to think, they say, yes, uh, it was a strategic move. The PES, as the party is called, is strong in areas where AMLO didn't have any support. So they join the coalition. It's a really tiny party. They'll have a handful of seats in the um, legislature. But that was highly problematic for people on the left, absolutely. And so the criticisms of AMLO have been there really through the whole course of this campaign from the left. His moderation on economic things, his ties to the business class, his ties with these right-wing evangelicals, all of those have given people to the left pause. He was never all that radical to begin with, right? He was never all that radical. When he governed Mexico City, he was really very pragmatic. That's the word that people use to describe it. So his background, you know, he comes from the state of Tabasco. He went to the UNAM in the 70s and studied, you know, um, Marxist economic ideas. He worked in the National Indigenous Institute in the 70s in Tabasco, and he did this thing where he kind of lived very humbly among the indigenous people and was really instrumental in bringing various kinds of development programs into the region. But 
as he sort of ascended the political ranks, he definitely began to govern in a very pragmatic way. And so when he was mayor of Mexico City in the early 2000s, people look back at that time and they say, look, he was a pragmatist. He had important close ties with members of the business class like Carlos Slim. And so he wasn't, while he did bring in some new social programs, things with housing and pensions and those kinds of things, he really governed pragmatically. And so that's what people expect from him now that he's president as well. That just seems inevitable for a politician running for high office. Um, so it all depends on what pressures he's going to be subject to. So what do the social movements look like? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really interesting question right now. The coalition that he's built, there's sort of the inside and the outside pressures that will come. So there are people within his cabinet and his inner circle who are genuine radicals, right? People who come from long radical traditions in Mexico, whose families were member founding members of the Communist Party there. So there are important left figures within his administration who will absolutely have already started talking about how they counterbalance some of the other sort of forces in the coalition. From the outside, on the social movement perspective, it's a little bit hard to know. The overwhelming opposition to Peña Nieto, the current president, over these last five years has brought hundreds of thousands of people out into the street. Things like human rights scandals like the Ayotzinapa crisis, the disappearance of those 43 students. When Peña Nieto raised the gas prices massively, that brought tons of people out into the streets, basically caused riots. But the institutional left in Mexico has really been kind of eviscerated and captured through the party politics that have existed basically since the late 1980s, when the PRD, the nominal left party, the party of the democratic revolution was founded. Lots of energy was sort of poured into that. There are other small parties that have been important as well. The workers party, the PT, there are small socialist parties, but a lot of energy was poured into the party for the democratic revolution. And that party eventually was captured by kind of centrist, business-friendly, this faction that's called the Chuchos. And the Chuchos took over the left party. And that was really the moment when López Obrador left in 2012 after running for president on the PRD platform uh, and losing. Uh, he was basically like, this party no longer exists as a left party. I'm going to leave. And that's why he left the PRD and started his own social movement, Morena, which was certified as a party in 2014. Lots of energy has been poured into Morena especially in, obviously in the lead up to this election. It remains to be seen how Morena will function kind of as a party with links to these various kinds of social movement formations. But what people within the administration, um, within the campaign team have told me is that they are ready to sort of take on this fight, that this is now the moment in which the left really needs to hold Lopez Obrador accountable for this really very historic win. NAFTA. His Yahoo counterpart to the north wants to redo NAFTA. Is there any way they can come up with some kind of deal? Well, who knows what Trump really wants? Do you foresee that they can actually negotiate something different? Yeah, that's a good question. So they're already meeting. The members of the Trump administration are there this week. They will meet today and tomorrow with uh, members of the Lopez Obrador team. The economic team that he has assembled uh, is interesting. It is um, composed of a number of people who've held academic positions previously, some people from the business class. And so Lopez Obrador has this kind of state developmentalist vision, right? He really thinks that the state should be a vehicle for kind of arbitration between capitalist business interests and the poor and the working class. So he wants to use the state as a kind of redistributive vehicle, but not fundamentally change the underlying capitalist structure of the economy, right? And does that include protectionism, you know, old 70s style? He hasn't talked a lot about protectionism beyond the idea of um, agriculture and food sovereignty. So those are two really important things. And that's interesting, actually, because Mexico became a net food importer actually back in the 70s. So Mexico has not been food self-sufficient for decades now. And that's something that he talked about a lot. Um, so it remains to be seen whether that is actually an achievable goal. But he has talked about protecting Mexican agriculture more than is currently the case under NAFTA. Obviously, the kind of big ticket items under NAFTA have to do with manufacturing, especially in the north, the kind of tightly integrated supply chains of the automobile industry, for example. There, Trump being such a wild card is spectacular, but probably in the end won't mean very much. 
Trump said this lunatic thing last week about how um, he was going to raise taxes or tariffs on Mexican cars, <laughs> right? As though the cars that are driving around, all those Mexican brands of cars that we see driving around here. Instead, if you're in Mexico, what you see are these factories for GM, Ford, right? For all the big U.S. car makers. It's so integrated now that disrupting that would be enormously troublesome. Yeah, literally tens of billions of dollars flowing back and, course, back and forth across the border every day. That supply chain is so tightly integrated. I would expect Lopez Obrador to, to continue that, right? To not change very much about that. Um, he has really focused on the countryside and on agriculture. And that makes sense in some sense because that's the area that has really been neglected in this neoliberal transition that Mexico has gone through. A great deal of intention, attention and investment has gone to the north, right? Um, north of Mexico City, up towards the border. That is the kind of industrial heartland of Mexico. You have the maquila sector on the border. You have the area around Monterrey, where um, all of the most important kind of industrial installations are. And the southern part of Mexico, which is where Lopez Obrador comes from, uh, is much more agricultural, much poorer, much less developed. And so he has said that he wants to kind of bring the state's focus on those more rural agricultural zones to the south. So I would expect in NAFTA negotiations to see much more concern about that coming from the Lopez Obrador administration and to kind of see a status quo when it comes to the manufacturing stuff in the north. I'm speaking with the sociologist Christy Thornton. And immigration, uh, Trump obviously uh, takes that issue very seriously. What is uh, Lopez Obrador's reaction to that stuff? And what about doing more to seal Mexico's southern border, which is something I guess Trump would like? Mexico has done a tremendous amount to try and seal its southern border. I think I saw the numbers this week that the United States has deported 20,000 Mexicans this year. I mean, Central Americans this year. Mexico has actually deported 95,000, right? So Mexico is deporting five times the number of Central Americans out of its territory that the United States is deporting out of its. The sealing off of the southern border has been something that the Mexicans have been doing using the military for years now. It has been part of a close security cooperation agreement between Mexico and the United States, and basically creating this situation in which Mexico functions as a proxy for U.S. migration policy. So there has been, you know, equipment and training and various kinds of security cooperation, all focusing on sort of closing off Mexico's southern border. And it has become a highly militarized zone. Lopez Obrador has said that he wants to change that, that he's no longer willing to do the United States what he calls dirty work. He used that phrase. And so he has said that he wants to decentralize many of the functions of the federal government, which are really focused in Mexico City. He has said that he will move the focus of migration up toward the northern border. But just this week, uh, his likely security chief seemed to indicate that he wants to create what he's calling a new border police force. And so that's interesting because it is about moving the military out of this role, which is something that's very important to Lopez Obrador, given the sort of horrific human rights record, the escalating violence that's happened with regard to the drug war and migration. Um, bringing the military out of these functions will be really important. But Creating if a new you just replace force, one set of guys with guns with another set of guys yeah, with so guns, that, what really changes? That's the question, is will this demilitarize? Now, this official, Durazo, who comes from... Uh, he worked closely with the Fox administration, that is, the who was the first president after the Democratic transition from the right-wing National Action Party. So this is one thing where people are really sort of like, is this actually going to change anything? You're bringing this guy who has been a kind of security official for these successive governments that you've been criticizing. So the question is, can this new border police force really change anything about this? One thing that I think gives some hope is that Lopez Obrador has talked about having a comprehensive strategy when it comes to these things, and he's very concerned constantly with all of questions of migration um, about the sending conditions, right? So he has said that he wants Mexico to cooperate more with Central America to try and help it so that people aren't trying to leave Central America in such staggering numbers. So he's talked about this border police force just being one aspect of a kind of larger, more comprehensive strategy that involves development and various other kinds of assistance to Central American countries with the hope that you might get fewer people to leave. Now, um, what are the popular feelings around immigration or refugees? For the most part, there is actually an incredible display of compassion and help. 
you know, this is a very a kind of typical Mexican trait. But along the migration route, right, uh, this train called La Bestia, the, the freight train that migrants ride that transverses the whole country, everywhere that the migrants pass through, there are people coming out in droves, volunteer groups, small community organizations, churches, that kind of thing, who come out to give food and clothing and water to passing migrants. So you have this massive kind of community outpouring because there has not been a kind of working state apparatus to try and help these people in Mexico. So there is an overwhelming feeling that um, the migrants should be helped coming from people who are along the kind of migrant trail. And Lopez Obrador talked a lot in the campaign about um, respecting the human rights of migrants, not treating them as criminals in the country. So I think that that is definitely an important aspect of this movement. If this creation of this new border police force really is some way in which Lopez Obrador intends to stand up to the Trump administration by making it this sort of more holistic thing that could be useful. But this really remains to be seen. And this is one area in which the kind of links to the past established security apparatus and parties um, has raised a red flag for some of his critics. And of course, it goes without saying there will be not one peso for the wall, right? There will never be a single peso for the wall. That was one important thing about this campaign was that you know, observers here in the United States, particularly in the mainstream press, really wanted to make a lot of both the comparison between AMLO and Trump and also the idea that this election was somehow about Trump, that it was like a referendum on standing up to Trump. And in fact, what we saw was that the rejection of Trump's agenda and the rejection of Trump in general was there across the board. It was just a sort of agreed upon standard. Look, nobody agrees with what Trump's doing. Nobody wants to cooperate with Trump in these policies. So it wasn't even something that the candidates really had to argue about because everyone was on the same page. Now, there are a bunch of other elections as well, aside from the presidential election, yeah. uh, the, both houses of the Congress, uh, lots of state elections. Well, let's talk about the Congress. What, what will he have to work with? That's the really kind of one of the things that's really staggering about this election. So you're right. This was a massive election, 3,400 vacant seats. The presidency, the entire Congress, nine governorships um, out of the 25 or so states that there are, and then just tons of state and municipal level offices. Morena's win was overwhelming in all of those. So not only did Lopez Obrador win with 53% of the vote, which was really staggering, Morena won, the last I saw, something like six of the nine open governorships. Morena and their coalition partners won majorities in both houses of Congress. Not the kind of bulletproof majority that will allow them to make changes to the Constitution, but over 50% in both the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies, the lower house. And in tons of local offices, places that have long been these kinds of pre-strongholds, you saw Morena candidates um, become local deputies, local municipal officials. The Morena sweep of these elections was not just at the presidency, but was really at all levels. One of the really important aspects of this story, that's something that we'll be talking about more. The PRI was just eviscerated completely, as was the PRD, which will actually be decertified as a party because it got so few votes. So the establishment left party that was taken over by the center right, that party will be decertified. It got less than 5% of the national votes. So it will have to petition again, actually, to become a party in the future. But this was just a total repudiation of the PRI in a way that I think opens some really interesting possibilities for politics in Mexico in the future. Now, how much of that vote was uh, just to throw the bums out thing and how much of it was for a specific agenda? Both of those things are definitely part of the kind of surge towards Morena. You saw Lopez Obrador continue to increase in the polls. As his victory became more and more inevitable, you saw more and more people actually aligning themselves with him, right? More and more people throwing in their lot with Morena saying, oh, maybe AMLO's not a danger to Mexico. Maybe he'll be okay. So it is definitely a repudiation of the kind of establishment parties, without a doubt. And in that way, the kind of total defeat of the PRI is, is as important as the victory of Morena. But there was also a sense that the promises that had been made before by the PAN, the right-wing party, and the PRI, which had been in power for 77 of the last 90 years or something like that, they just had failed to comply with any of their promises, right? That they, things had only gotten worse. 
there was some, some sense of we need to try something else. There has to be some other solution to this, and the established parties have not offered one. When the Mexican people returned the PRI to power in 2012, there was this idea that the drug war had gotten so violent and so dangerous, the economy was so stagnant, inequality was so bad, that maybe they could just go back to the way things were before the democratic opening in 2000. Maybe there could just be this return to kind of the stability of the PRI. And in fact, things just got worse, right? Uh, the violence, the in inequality, insecurity, those things all just got worse. So there was definitely a sense of something's got to give. And so that, I think, will be an important part of how Lopez Obrador governs going forward. And you're seeing a lot of Mexican commentators saying now he has to govern not just for the people who are kind of his base, the people who always would have voted for him, but also for all the people who came out and, you know, sort of adhered themselves to him um, with the idea that there just wasn't a better option. Winning elections is nice, but uh, there's a lot of inertia. There's a ruling class to worry about. And we, you know, a lot of the, the, the revulsion against corruption, corruption can be a way in which a ruling class maintains power over the state. So what about that? Yeah. What, what are the forces of resistance and how much power uh, will uh, AMLO have to change that? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. Corruption was the key aspect of his campaign, right? Like that's the main thing that his entire campaign hinged on. The idea that he would be able to sort of clean up the government and in that way, reorient, especially government spending towards social programs. So he has said his program is Republican austerity, which harkens back to the 19th century and is the idea that um, government spending should be for on social programs, not on the kind of lavish and elaborate ways that politicians there, in Mexico. There was some confusion around that word austerity, wasn't Absolutely. there? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So. Lopez Obrador, when he uses the word austerity, he does not mean it in the way that uh, Jeremy Corbyn does, for instance. And this is another one of the ways in which there is a certain kind of Mexican exceptionalism. Mexico always kind of politics um, sort of answering to an internal Mexican logic and not really comporting with these larger trends that we see elsewhere. When Lopez Obrador talks about austerity, he means specifically going after the idea of using the federal government to enrich politicians and their cronies. And that is has long been an important aspect of Mexican politics, right? This old pre-saying, a politician who is poor is a poor politician, something coined in the 1980s uh, with some sense of pride uh, from, a, from a functionary within the pre. So as the campaign was kind of closing, we saw some really important last minute pushback from important members of the business class a grouping from within the Mexican National Chamber of Commerce published this full page letter kind of warning about what might happen to the Mexican economy if Lopez Obrador is elected. And so those people, I think we can expect to see there being pushback precisely because they are the people who benefit from the kind of corrupt status quo. They are the people who benefit from the no-show contracts, from the kickbacks, from the kind of access to politicians who can be bought and sold. If Lopez Obrador is able to pull this off, and um, I'm friends with the official uh, within the within the administration, the Lopez Obrador administration, whose job will be this. She's the her name is um, Irma Erendra Sandoval, and she will be what is essentially kind of a federal government kind of comptroller general. She'll be the person in charge of the purse strings of sort of how federal money gets doled out. And I do not envy her this position, but she is an incredibly forthright, incredibly radical woman. And she'll be the person kind of in charge of figuring out, reviewing the various kinds of contracts and how the federal government's money gets spent and really shutting off this tap that goes into just funneling federal money into the states and uh, this kind of loop of corruption that exists for bringing federal money into these various kinds of crony kickbacks. I'm speaking with the sociologist Christy Thornton. Given the number of assassinations recently, politicians, activists, journalists, yeah. uh, I would imagine that this new administration um, must have be looking at good bodyguards. Yeah, it's really interesting. Lopez Obrador himself kind of refused all of those trappings throughout the campaign. Other candidates would travel with these big security details, and he would not, right? And this has been something he's been doing for years, just sort of going out, being among the people, and you're right that there was tremendous violence in the lead up to the campaign. Almost 150 political officials, 40 of which were actively campaigning for office, were murdered in this campaign season. 
And that has to do with the kind of fracturing of the drug cartels that has happened under the militarization strategy that's been going on for the last decade. One of the hopes is that Lopez Obrador uh, will withdraw the military from the fight of the drug war. Uh, he talks a lot about going after the root causes of why people sign up to work for the drug cartels in the first place. But again, there, the kind of structural constraint, which is the big giant $30 billion a year drug market that we have here in the United States. That's actually just the amount that goes back to Mexico. It's a $100 billion drug market. $30 billion goes back, to the, goes back to Mexico every year. That's the real structural constraint on what Lopez Obrador can do about the drug war. As long as the prohibition and the kind of punitive drug war exists here in the U.S., the economic incentive for growing, distributing, selling, smuggling those drugs will continue to exist. And so he wants to pull back the violence there by removing the military. Hopefully that will begin to calm things down. But we've seen this kind of fracturing of the drug cartels as the Peña Nieto administration and the administrations before him took out the kingpins of the various cartels and caused these kind of power struggles within them. The security situation is one of the reasons that people really turn to Morena and is one of the most intractable and difficult things that the administration will face. This is sort of a tangential question, but I've been wondering about this for a while. Uh, the old Mexican elite was tied to uh, national industries. NAFTA bust a lot of that apart mm -hmm. and created a new transnational elite. How's it all worked out now? Who is the Mexican business elite at this point? Yeah, it's interesting. What happened was that, uh, and something we don't talk about a lot, is that there is a kind of Mexican oligarchy that really benefited from neoliberalization and the, the wave of privatization that really began after 1982, accelerated with NAFTA. And so we have pretty similar to what happens in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? The kind of wholesale selling off of these state industries means that you create this kind of oligarch class in Mexico. There was all Salinas' friends from exactly, Monterey, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So from, from the Salinas administration forward, you very much have the creation of these few at the very top very politically linked Mexican oligarchs. Uh, Carlos Slim is obviously the most important one of these. And one of the interesting things that has happened over the Peña Nieto administration has been Peña Nieto was pushing these kinds of further neoliberalizations, right? He wanted to deregulate the few industries that remained regulated, right? Oil, telecommunications, right? Breaking up the teachers' unions. These were important aspects of his kind of reform strategy. And so those are actually areas where you've seen this kind of oligarchic power remain. So there was the potential for those reforms to kind of at least introduce some competition in, for instance, telecommunications. If you have a cell phone in Mexico, you are paying Carlos Slim. He basically owns the entire telecommunications industry. And that's because when it was privatized in the course of the 80s and 90s, right, his various enterprises were the people who were able to buy it. he got it all that for a song, right? For Absolutely for a song and has been profiting massively from it ever since. So you do have, you still have this kind of nationally based oligarchy that, you know, is involved in those kinds of industries. But as you said, there is all also, of course, the, the sort of transnationalization of this. And particularly, of course, with things like finance and real estate. Real estate has really picked up in Mexico in recent years. In places where drug war devastation was terrible, like Ciudad Juarez, you've seen these kinds of transnational real estate interests from Texas, for instance, come in and begin to redevelop places where people were dis dislocated from the violence and bring in, for instance, chain stores where there used to be mom and pop shops. And then the question, of course, is about the links between so-called licit capital and illicit capital, right? And those are really hard to tease out in Mexico because the amount of drug money that's coming back across the border is massive. And the ways that it gets laundered are in things like finance and real estate, right? And so that question, I think, is a really important one and one that we don't really have good answers about, about how much of the capitalist class is involved with various kinds of narco money that's circulating around. Then what about the oil industry that was closed off for years? Is it opening at all? Or? Yeah, so the oil industry, you know, Mexican oil was nationalized in 1938 under President Lázaro Cárdenas, seen as the kind of fulfillment of the Mexican Revolution. It took 20 years, but they finally did this thing. And so the Mexican state-owned oil company Pemex had ups and downs over the years that followed. 
huge discoveries of oil in the 1970s that brought in important kinds of money, but there was the sense that Pemex was not only an important kind of area for massive corruption, right? People involved in Pemex, Pemex officials were very corrupt and involved in these various kinds of kickback schemes. Um, no one who works for Pemex was ever poor in this period. That's definitely true. So when the Peña Nieto administration managed to force through the constitutional change through a pact of the three main parties, the PAN, the PRD, and the PRI got together in the legislature and pushed this thing as a pact, they opened the Mexican oil industry to foreign investment for the first time. What that means are these kinds of mixed partnerships where foreign oil companies sign deals with the state-owned oil company for research, prospecting, development, pipelines, these kinds of things. So there have been, it got off to a slow start. The first offering that Peña Nieto did, the first time they sort of put out the call to auction off these rights, um, they got basically no takers. <laughs> so they had to change the terms a little bit. They've signed, I think it's something like 117 of these contracts with foreign oil companies. And I think that they have been bringing investment in. But again, this is one of these things where the Peña Nieto administration promised that what opening the oil industry to foreign investment would mean was cheaper oil and gas for Mexican consumers. And in fact, we've seen completely the opposite. He nearly doubled the gas price, causing these huge protests that happened in 2017. And so you're seeing foreign oil companies being able to take profits from this, but the Mexican people are not getting any of these benefits. Lopez Obrador has said he will review these contracts. This was one of the important places where he really moderated during the campaign. At first it was, you know, we want to tear up this change. He doesn't have the majority in the legislature to be able to change the Constitution back to what it was before. Um, that's a question that, you know, requires a two-thirds majority in the legislature to be able to amend the Constitution. So he said he'll review the contracts. Those that are found to be kind of above board, that don't involve corruption or kickbacks or any kind of strange corruption, he will allow to stand. What I think we will see is that he will not issue new contracts with the speed that the Peña Nieto administration has been doing. So I would expect to see a slowdown in this industry. He will not be promoting these kinds of public-private partnerships between foreign oil companies and the state-run oil company at the same time that he will be trying to kind of root out the corruption within the oil company that still exists. And finally, you mentioned uh, Mexican exceptionalism earlier. Mm. Uh, Mexico is moving left while most of the rest of Latin America is moving to the right. Exactly. First of all, why do you think that is? But second of all, you know, how hopeful should we be or should we, we guard uh, against disappointment? Yeah, you're right that this is this kind of bucks the trend. And Mexico has long bucked the trend in how the rest of Latin America has gone. There are a number of reasons for that. One of the most important is just the power, the historical power of the PRI, the kind of one party state throughout most of the 20th century and its ability to act as a kind of channel for various kinds of social forces to kind of keep social conflict under wraps. Uh, that was the kind of governing idea for the PRI and the, the reason that they existed and stayed in power for so long. So when you saw, for instance, waves of military dictatorship take over in much of Latin America, Mexico resisted that trend. Mexico kept a civilian government, right? The military was not a very important political force. And now, as we've seen this kind of, when we saw the left-wing swing uh, in much of South America and Central America, we had right-wing governments, the, the center-right government of the PAN elected in Mexico twice. So I think that some of it is about the history of the PRI. And with regard to how optimistic we should be about this, I think we should absolutely be optimistic. The mandate with which Lopez Obrador will enter office and some of the people, I very much trust some of the people who will take office with him, uh, who will be in his cabinet. And I know them personally and know that they will be very forthright in their fight for a kind of social justice agenda. That said, the structural constraints are very real, right? And so Lopez Obrador taking office with Trump in office here in the United States, rather than Hillary Clinton-esque formation, presents some real problems. On drug policy, for instance, the kind of international consensus on drug policy 
through the Obama administration at the UN was basically, look, the way we've run the war on drugs for the last 40 years obviously hasn't worked, right? Drugs are cheaper, more potent, and more abundant than they were when we started this thing. So it has patently failed in every way. And so you saw in 2016, people like uh, Juan Manuel Santos, the president of Colombia, important people at the UN sort of saying, look, we need to change what the global drug war looks like. Trump administration comes in, Jeff Sessions as attorney general, right? We've just gone back to this highly militarized, highly punitive idea of what the drug war is, both here in the United States and abroad. That constraint of having this kind of lunatic reactionary in office here in the United States will be a really important one for him. And then the question of sort of the other right-wing governments, the question of relations with places in Central America, for example, if this uh, development policy, border policy, border police development policy thing is going to work, um, he'll have to work closely with these governments in Central America. And, you know, Nicaragua is up in flames right now. The Honduran government is very right-wing. And the um, Guatemalan government is, is center-right. So he's in hostile territory there in the middle of Central America and the United States in that way. So that those questions, I think, will be really important in determining how much space Lopez Obrador has to move with regard to some of these important international questions. That was Christy Thornton, former executive director of the North American Congress in Latin America, and now an assistant professor of sociology at Johns Hopkins. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, the eighth of Boulez's Douze Notations, performed by Pichen Chen. Till next week, bye. <laughs>